Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Longtime listeners of the show know that I don't shy away from dating myself. So let's go back to the summer of 1992. I had just finished up my freshman year of college and was working a gig at the local movie theater. Probably the most anticipated movie that year was A League of Their Own. The film starring Tom Hanks, Madonna, and Rosie O'Donnell was an instant hit. I loved it. So you can imagine my excitement when Amazon announced that they were releasing a series based on that. That would give us even a deeper look at the All-American Girls Professional Baseball Leagues. That series debuts today, and later this hour we'll learn more about it and some great women baseball players from right here in Tennessee. But first, for 157 years, Harpeth Hall has been dedicated to all-girls education. Recently, the school has been wrestling with how to address non-binary and trans students who have publicly announced their gender identities, leading to pressure from students and the public for Harpeth Hall to make a public statement on their policy. My guests are here today to talk about that issue. I'd like to introduce Eli Matica. Modica, pardon me, and from the Nashville scene, and Holly Graham, former WPLN intern and w- senior at Harpeth Hall. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank Thanks, you so much. Cleo. So, so Holly, let me start with you. You've been at Harpeth Hall since you were in the fifth grade. How is all of this hitting you? Um, yes, I've been at Harpeth Hall for seven years now, going into my eighth year. And um, I will say... Um, after all my time there, it is um, a bit of a surprise, but um, I'm interested to see um, how the school um, deals with it from here. What have this? What have your peers and your students been saying about this? Um, there are a lot of different opinions circulating, to be completely honest, but what I can say um, for certain is that students are talking about it in a lot of different realms. I was just at dinner, a casual dinner with my friends the other night, and um, right after the news came out, and we were all talking about it just um, in sort of like a friendly circle. So this is definitely not just at school. It's definitely not in the classroom. I know students are talking about it um, almost, you know, in their homes, with their parents, with their families, and with their friends too. Now, Eli, for your story on this on the scene, you spoke with alums and parents. What have they told you? They have told me, I think similar to what um, we just heard, that it's a complicated conversation that they're um, trying to evaluate whether, in some cases, the school is the right place for their their ch- children to remain if their child is coming out as non-binary or trans. Alums have reflected on their time, um, some of whom who have come out after leaving Harpeth Hall, their time at Harpeth Hall and the um, education that they got, and which many reflect very fondly on, especially praising teachers and faculty, um, but really reflecting on the ideas of femininity and the culture at Harpeth Hall and the way that that intersected with their relationship to their gender. Mm-hmm. Now, what about other all-girls schools in the area? Are they addressing gender diversity as well? Yes, Eli. St. Cecilia, as far as I know, um, you may know, Holly, St. Cecilia is the only other um, all-girls high school or historically women's high school in Nashville. 
MBA is the historically male school um, and kind of a counterpart to Harpeth Hall. They do a lot of things together. And I got no comment from St. Cecilia or MBA functionally. I think I wrote in the story, both got back to me with something like, we're not dealing with this, we're not addressing this. And I, and, and I think that's just as important a story as the fact that Harpeth Hall has decided to talk about gender diversity is that these other schools haven't. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that these aren't issues that students aren't fa- or that student students at those schools are surely facing these issues um, as any mm-hmm. as anyone is issues about gender identity and questions about gender identity. But those schools have not come out with any kind of gender diversity statement and don't really seem interested in even talking to um, anyone about it publicly. Now, Hallie, um, last year. The school newspaper published an op-ed that calls for the official recognition of trans students. How did that op-ed resonate with you? Um, With me personally, um, I have been at Harpeth Hall, like I said, for seven years. Um, My experience at Harpeth Hall has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I, my, um, you may know, Harpeth Hall is known for their um, Campbell plaid skirts, and it's sort of our our symbol of our school. And I take I take immense pride in wearing that skirt to school every day. But I will say that part of the reason why I love Harpeth Hall is the culture centered around um, teachers being able to say things like. Um, hey girls or um, hey ladies. And I think that the, one of the reasons why I chose Harpeth Hall and why I continue to love Harpeth Hall and my education there is because of that environment. And um, while, I mean, I'm a part of the paper and I'm glad that our school newspaper is willing to publish um, people's opinions, whatever they may be, and even if they're as strong as that opinion was. Um, but for me, I like the culture at Harpeth Hall um, the way it is um, right now, as I've had a wonderful experience there, and I value my education there so far, higher than a lot of other things in my life. Eli, how did school administration respond to that op-ed? Um, there are some, you should read it. It's on Logos, the school paper that Hallie works, or that Hallie writes for. Um, I, there, and they, Jessica, or Jess Hill, the head of school, responded in that article, and so I encourage everyone to go read it. Um, do you want to know how they're, yeah, to, to that article specifically, or how they responded to my... Yeah, to that to that article specifically, and what they said to you about it, when you, when you talked to them. They said something very similar to the statement that they released, which is that there, um, there have been many years of ongoing conversations about gender diversity at Harpeth Hall. Uh, this was probably a couple weeks ago that I first um, contacted the school in my reporting, and they were not ready to release at that point what they've released since, which is this gender diversity philosophy that um, we both have in front of us right now. Um, but So at that point, they were um, kind of just explaining that it was something that they were taking really seriously, that they were discussing with students and families um, on a at that point, the language was on a case-by-case basis, and that, that's been further clarified with this um, statement that they've made since then, so I don't want to say that that's still their position, but uh, it was you know, an ongoing conversation was the way that they had responded to the students, um, as far as I know. But Hallie may know, in, within the school, maybe they were responding differently. And then I also, I also did learn that they had changed part of the school dress code to allow pants, which is something that they had allowed at a previous point in Harpeth Hall's history. And some students kind of thought that that was also a response to calls for more gender inclusive, a more gender inclusive environment. 
How did the dress code allowance affect students? Um, well, um, as far as I can tell, in the school's history, there have been a lot of um, occasions where um, pants have been an option, as well as like um, also skirts um, as an alternative to a skirt. Um, I the students sort of knew that the um, pants decision was coming, I think, um, because there's been a lot of talk about that amongst students. Um, but I would put these two decisions in separate categories. I think that coming out with a gender diversity philosophy is a little bit different than just adding pants to a list of uh, clothing items that students can choose from. I would say that they are certainly in two separate buckets. Now, you're a student reporter. Do you have any questions for Eli? Um, I would say just like you said, as a, um, a, a young person um, in the communications field, um, just on the journalism side of this, um, how do you think Harbeth Hall has been treated by the media? And uh, do you think the response has been fair to the philosophy? It has been appalling to see the way that um, particularly conservative cultural propaganda has twisted the story and reduced it to a kind of culture war. Specifically, there was, a, there was coverage by Fox News and I think some other smaller conservative sites recently in the past 48 hours. I, in my reporting, I really was wrestling with this question, too, because at one, in, on the one hand, it is a really important story for the city and for parents, prospective parents and current parents, to hear from an entity other than just the school about how the school environment is being um, crafted and treated within Harbeth Hall. But at, on the other hand, like I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, Harpeth Hall is one of three um, gendered educational private institutions in Nashville, along with St. Cecilia and MBA. And St. Cecilia and MBA have chosen to just not deal with this at all. And uh, I think that Harpeth Hall has stepped out and uh, attempted to start a process to address it. Have, they've been going through a process to address it. And I think that that comes with a, the brunt of the scrutiny while MBA and, and St. Cecilia are just choosing not to wade into it. Even, even if they think that it's not an issue within their student body, it doesn't mean that they don't, they don't need to come out with uh, gender diversity or they don't need to address it at all. So I, I think that the fact that Harpeth Hall has stepped out and addressed it has exposed them to a lot of criticism without that same kind of scrutiny being brought to MBA and, and or St. Cecilia. And MBA specifically is a much wealthier male school that has escaped a lot of scrutiny for this too. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Hallie, you mentioned that you want to keep things that the way that they've been, but can you see the perspective of where others are coming from? Oh, absolutely. That's part of what Harpeth Hall has taught me, and that's where my um, that's part of my pride in my education is that I'm able to have constructive and intelligent conversations with others, and. Um, I appreciate the stance of the other two schools being St. Cecilia and MBA. I understand why they haven't stepped out because of all the scrutiny Harpeth Hall has received. And just insularly for um, for Harpeth Hall, um, I understand why um, Harpeth Hall has joined the conversation. I mean, um, prospective parents and with prospective students need to hear this, but also... Um, I mean, I appreciate as a um, current family and as a current student at Harpeth Hall them coming out with this, but I do wish that they would um, give some clarity um, on this um, issue at Harpeth Hall. Um, I, I appreciate um, I appreciate this first step, but I, I do I do look for more honesty in the coming days. 
Now, Eli, what are you keeping an eye on as the story develops? That, what we just heard, that's the number one thing that I've heard from anyone who's reached out to me or who I've talked to sources for this, is that they're just hoping to have some sort of clarity. Um, they're still, even with the statement, I've heard from a lot of folks, parents, alums, about the um, what they feel like is the ambiguity with the statement. They're not sure whether this is inclusive of trans students, trans um, male students or trans female students or non-binary students. They're just, there's so many questions still out there, like we just heard, and I think that's that's what I'm focused on. There have been a lot of Zoom calls, from what I've heard, with students and with alums and parents, and there and that has, from who I've talked to, in some cases, just added more ambiguity that they've felt like some, some parents specifically have walked away and contacted me and said they feel like there's just, there's even more potentially contradictory things being said or or just more um, ambiguity mm -hmm. from those calls. And so we're just trying to figure out it's a long process. It's a difficult process. A lot of historically women's colleges specifically have gone through this process and come out mm -hmm. in different places. And But it's about clarity and it's about standing behind a decision that you make and having good reasons and uh, about why you made that decision and, and communicating that to everyone. Okay. Clarity is the top of the list. That is Eli Modica from the Nashville scene. He was joined by Hallie Graham, a senior at Harpeth Hall. Eli and Hallie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we set our eyes on the All-American Girls Baseball League. The new series, The League of Their Own, tells the story of that league, and it premieres today. We'll meet a cast member and talk with the Nashville writer whose work helped inform the show. Are you a woman who plays baseball? Do you love the game? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Today, Amazon re released their new series, A League of Their Own, which follows the journey of the All-American Girls League during World War II. Max Chapman, played by Shantae Adams, is determined to play baseball, a dream that sometimes puts her in direct conflict with her mother, Tony. In one scene, Max has been caught trying out for the baseball team after saying she was going to a Duke Ellington concert. Let's listen. Yes, I went to the tryouts. So you lied to me. If you knew already, why you have to do this in front of the whole salon? Well, they don't care. No, oh, we, we love care. it. I said, obviously, she went to those tryouts. I you knew did all not. Along. I said that. I was telling you about no, it. No, you didn't. It was Thursday. OK, you can stop. Didn't I say it? Stop. How you know, Mama? Guy told us. He came in here with some leftovers his mama made him. He didn't want to waste that good pork. God. That pork is delicious. Now, Maxine, you've got to make some smarter choices. I'm making the best Once choices. Once this salon is yours, I will kill you if you lose this business because mm -hmm. you're still acting like a child over this baseball nonsense. Even if I'm dead, I will come back and I will kill you. This is fine. I have told you before, owning your own business in this country is the only way you can have some control of your life. I'm all for you having a dream, Maxine. I just want you to pick one that's possible. Well, we have Tony Chapman here with us today, AKA my very own sister, Saida Arika Ekulona. Sai, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. I'm really <laughs> honored to be here. Such an honor to have you. So, you know, <laughs> in that scene, we hear the tension between mother and daughter. So tell me, why is Tony so dead set against her daughter playing baseball? Well, Tony is 
trying to protect her daughter. You know, it's 1943, segregation is still alive. Um, there's racism, there's sexism, and she wants to protect Max to make sure that she's got a good future. So yes, Max might not be married at that time, but she wants her to have her own business because that's a way for the community to respect her. Uh, that's a way for the white community to respect her. That's a way for her to have something of her own that no one can take away from her. Mm-hmm. Now tell us more. Yes, tell us more about your, your character, Tony Chapman. Well, Tony Chapman, ugh, I love her. She's a mother, a wife, and a business owner. Um, she has a very strong relationship with her husband, Edgar. They have a beautiful daughter, Max, who is, you know, she's been given everything that Tony and Edgar did not get, you know, because they came up from the South during the great migration. And they, and I know that Tony wanted to make sure that her daughter had not only everything that she didn't have, but raising her to be an upstanding member of the African-American community in Rockford. Because that's important to Tony. Tony's also ambitious. She she loves Edgar for loving her for who she is. And she sees her sights on greater things. She doesn't let racism or sexism um, prevent her from achieving her goals. Mm-hmm. Now, I've known you for 49 years. I know the answer to this question. But do you share any traits with her? Hmm. No, what do you think? Maybe yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> two or three, maybe. <laughs> Just two or three, or maybe all. I mean, um, definitely. You know, we were raised that we can do whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, that we were not going to let racism or sexism stand in our way. And I certainly think that each of us have achieved our goals, and we're still achieving our goals, no matter what. We are. We are. Um, also community oriented. We love having a lot of people around um, and engaging with people. That's one of the things that you and I were raised with. And that's certainly something that's a characteristic of Tony as well. Now, you know, how do you approach playing a role like this? What is your process for getting to know who Tony is? Well, Part of it was identifying some of those characteristics. And the other thing was like looking into what was happening in 1943 for African-Americans and for women. And really it was about how, how does she handle Max? You know, uh, Max wants to play baseball. Tony thinks that that's just a hobby. It's not a real, a real career. Um, and looking at some female baseball players of the time, like, you know, like Maybelle Blair, she's been on the tour for the, for the show and she's just 95. Mm. She's a fantastic woman. Um, she's got a bunch of flair with her and she gave a lot of information to the writers about what it was like playing. And I also looked up Tony Stone, who was the first female to play as a regular on American Big League pro baseball team. And there's also Billy Harris, another African-American player who was known to be a great left-handed pitcher. So it was really just doing some research into what their experience was for uh, me to see what, how Tony could view Max and how Max wants to go play baseball, but also 
the social and the societal pressures that prevent Tony from letting Max do that. Mm-hmm. You know, are you a baseball? That's part of it. Are, are you a baseball fan? You know, I've been to games, you know, we've been to Oriole games and everything. It's Yankee games. It, you know, it's a little too long for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I do appreciate it socially, you know? Yes. Yes. The social parts of it. Yes. I think I know what you're talking about. So yes. yeah. What, what did you learn about the game of baseball as you play Tony? I learned about the unity of the team. Um, from watching uh, the show and reading the scripts, uh, looking at what the um, the girls had to do on the team, the Peaches, how they had to, you know, specify, okay, she's got this strength, she's got that, she's not really great at that, and how they all had to unite in order to play the game well and also in order to win. Um, I also learned that similar to what we do as actors, and also in my business, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And how do we come together to do a show? Mm-hmm. You know, it's very similar. But the unity, that's that's the biggest thing I learned. So tell me, what do you want people to take away from the show? I want people, oh, there's so many things. I want them to see themselves in it. I want them to see their family members in it. I want them to recognize that women can be funny. I want them to recognize the importance of women um, and how we've played a huge part in this uh, country's history. I also want people to recognize that this is an expansion from the film in terms that we have African-Americans in it. We have people from the uh, queer community in it. Latinas are in it as well. I want people to remember that when we look back, when we do entertainment pieces about historical times, there are more people in the community than we just see. And I want people to just open themselves up and to see the contributions that all of those groups have actually made instead of being single-minded on just how, you know, the white community has, has done something. Everybody was part of it. Like we're all here together now. So find, find the connection, find the unity. And also that women can make you laugh. This is comedy. There's some drama in it. I just want people to actually um, enjoy and also to recognize women playing baseball, how important that is. And also women in sports outside of just the Olympics. I want us to all just really start going and patronizing, you know, women athletic groups because they need it just as much. Mm-hmm. See, I told you I had a lot to say. Yes. Yes. You did have a lot to say. Yes. I, I just remember that one season, that ill-fated attempt that you played softball. I'll never forget it. Uh, okay. You didn't need to bring that up. I thought this was supposed to be professional. Listen, here's the thing. I wasn't a good runner. <laughs> and also I didn't, I, I wasn't good at bat, but I was good at field hockey and lacrosse. So yes. I made that up. Quite good. Quite good. Yes. Hey, and I know you're busy. <laughs> I know you're busy and you're on set for another show, but is there anything real quick you'd like to share before you go? Well, first I am incredibly proud of my brother. Hmm. I'm also really happy that the show is finally coming out and I really hope everyone enjoys it. 
Well, that and is, I love you. I love you so much. That is actress Saida Araka Ikalona, my big sister, who plays Tony Chapman on the new series, A League of Their Own, which premieres today. Sai, thanks so much for taking time and thank you for being on the show. My pleasure, Khalil. I love you. Tell Anika I said hi. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye, baby. Bye. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the All-American Girls Baseball League and the women who have made an impact on the game. My next guest wrote a book about it. Anika Orock is the author and illustrator whose book, The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, is out now. Anika, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So, and that was really fun. Oh, thanks. That was so <laughs> much fun. You know, this new Amazon series, it reflects the real life history of the All-American Girls Baseball League. So let's get into some of that history. You wrote and illustrated this beautiful book that details the lives of the women who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Tell me, where did you get the idea to make the book? Uh, well, the idea really came from a realization that, you know, I was doing a lot of illustration work um, and uh, some some work in animation. And um, but but a lot of the work I was doing at the time was in baseball and I was drawing at baseball games and pulling stories from baseball history. It's kind of part of American folklore, you know, John Henry and Paul Bunyan and, you know, these larger than life figures. And um, it comes from, you know, sort of a, a nostalgic uh, history and a family connection, which I think a lot of people in America with baseball have. Um, but it really, I'm a visual learner. So I had a visual moment where I was compiling these um, illustrations for a little book I was going to put together of my baseball work and realized <laughs> in the moment that I had hardly any drawings of women, um, with the exception of like a few fans that were around me in the stands. Um, and it was just this weird realization because in that moment, it was like a million things downloading into my brain. And one of those things was, this is my first realization period of like my own concept of feminism. My, my, you know, I was a girl, I'm a woman, what I'm not even representing myself here. And, hmm. you know, from an artistic standpoint, it's really, um, you know, forgive me, but it's really boring to just have like, you know, the shape language and all that is very like uh, rigid and square and masculine. Um, but really the things that inspire me to draw are stories and, um, and there's a story in every drawing. And so realizing that I hadn't collected any stories and I just thought there's gotta be, they've gotta be out there for, you know, I love baseball this much and I want to find something in it that makes me feel connected to it more than just this thing that I grew up listening to. So um, I went on that journey and um, I went to the place that most people go to when they think of such a thing, which is a league of their own. Um, but then it just went from there. And I found those stories that I identified with. I found a lot more stories and I started finding heroes and then realizing that, you know, those heroes are everywhere if we look for them. So as you started looking into the league, tell us, how, how did the league get started? Uh, well, the league started as a result of, um, you know, World War II was like all hands on deck. Um, there was massive mobilization. Women were uh, filling positions that they had never filled before in, in factories, you know, making ammunition, making ships, also in office positions when, um, you know, a, a lot of the population of men went to fight in the war, particularly um, white men. And then, of course, the, it was like, again, an all hands on deck thing. So. It also became a matter of we don't have the capacity, you know, we have to set aside certain um, 
rules that we've had established and those rules were kind of temporarily broken. And um, so women were filling all kinds of positions, including on the ball field. So Philip Wrigley, owner of the Cubs, uh, decided this will be a great moneymaker and it'll keep, you know, recreation and activity alive and, and morale. Um, so he kind of used it as, as a substitute, but he didn't want it to be an inferior substitute. So um, they sought out real athletes. They um, they paid them sometimes more than their own fathers were making working mm. in their jobs. Um, you know, they wanted it to be a real professional league for longevity and for entertainment purposes. They knew it would kind of come off as a novelty at first. Um, and they wanted, you know, I guess you could say they, and some people have said they came for the skirts and the lipstick and the novelty of it, but they stayed for the baseball because mm -hmm. it was really good baseball. So as you're doing research on the book, you discovered some really amazing players, particularly amazing players here in Tennessee. And so I, I probably, I want to start with probably the most famous example, Jackie Mitchell. She wasn't in that league, but she was pretty, a, a famous pitcher who struck out two of baseball all-time greats. Tell me more about that moment. I feel like Jackie Mitchell is one of the most compelling stories in baseball history for me. Uh, she's born in Memphis, but she played for, uh, she was the only woman on um, the Chattanooga Lookouts. And the Yankees were coming through on their way from spring training for an exhibition game. And um, part of their batting lineup was actually known as Murderer's Row because mm -hmm. it was Babe Ruth, uh, Lou Gehrig, and Tony Lazaretti. And they just, you know, they were just lights out every time. And uh, she was only 17 years old. And uh, their starting pitcher wasn't doing so well. So they brought her in and uh, she struck out Babe Ruth and then proceeded to strike out even more easily, uh, Luke Gehrig. And uh, then when she walked Tony, they pulled her and, and put someone else in. But, you know, it was all these years, it's always been questioned. Was it a publicity stunt? Was it, you know, but uh, research and even Jackie Mitchell herself up to her dying day um, insisted that that was that was real. And I believe it, you know, mm -hmm. all the research I've read and everything, it's it's pretty great. What other Tennesseans made an impact on the game? Oh, wow. You know, what's really, uh, well, there were several players from the All-American Girls League and chaperones and coaches as well. Um, one of my favorites, uh, her, the nicknames in the All-American League were great. Her nickname was Bird Dog, um, mm. <laughs> Lillian Bird Dog Jackson. She's actually from Nashville. She was an outfielder. Um, she only played, I think, two seasons, but, um, and, you know, uh, also there's several from Knoxville. Chattanooga is a big baseball town in Tennessee. Lots of players from Chattanooga. Um, Doris Sams from Knoxville. She's like a five-time All-Star, two-time player of the year. She threw, she's one of two players in the All-American Girls League to um, to pitch a perfect game. And the other being Jean Fout, who actually pitched two perfect games, which she's the only baseball player, man or woman in history, wow. on a professional level to do such a thing. Um, what I find particularly, um, I guess, disappointing, but also fascinating and exciting is the Untold, you know, these histories that have been buried and are barely known are um, that we're barely finding out about are all of white women. So you can only imagine the histories and the stories that are not told that we haven't tapped into yet. Um, and when your sister was mentioning Tony Stone, that's one of my favorite stories. Tony Stone actually played um, in Nashville as part of a barnstorming tour. So she wasn't playing for a team here, but she played through here. But I recently found out that the... Um, the Southern Negro League was like a major league, uh, or I'm sorry, like a minor league 
to the Negro Leagues, the Southern Association. And Georgia May Williams, uh, also from Chattanooga, was the first woman to play on one of those teams. And um, her story has kind of just been buried like a lot of them, but there's information out there, and it's really fun to to dig around here since I've since I've moved here. That's been a fun a fun way to connect with with my new home, I guess you could say. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, we have to take a quick break. Coming up, we'll learn more about the impact women have made on and off the field. We'll also look at the future of women in baseball. Are you a woman or girl who plays baseball? We want to hear your stories. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lily Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking about the women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and the legacy the league and players have established. Now we want to look at other women who have influenced the game of baseball. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Andrea Williams is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. She is the author of the book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley, and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. Andrea, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So, you know, Effa Manley is the only woman inducted into Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Tell us more about her. Yeah, she co-owned a team, the Newark Eagles, originally the Brooklyn Eagles, uh, with her husband, Abe, and she ran the team. She would have been the business manager or the general manager as we know it today, um, but she handled all the player contracts and negotiations. Um, you know, when when players were looking to re-sign with the organization, they had to go through EFA, not Abe. Um, Abe would scout, but she, she, she was in charge of the purse for sure. Um, she, back before everybody had a community relations department or a PR team, she was doing that for her club, making sure the team stayed connected to the black community. And, you know, they held fundraisers for a local chapter of the NAACP. Um, they brought, you know, black boys in, you know, gave them free tickets to come watch watch the players so that they could, you know, envision life on the field as well as they got older. So she just she was ahead of her time um, in a lot of ways. And I think that's why she's in Cooperstown. How did you come across her story? Yeah, I grew up loving baseball, but really wanting to work in a front office. Um, I got my degree in sport management, went back home to Kansas City and started working at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And on a tour my very first day, I saw a picture of Effa and Abe and just had lots and lots of questions. Um, you know, the show is about women in baseball and the fact that for the most part, they existed on the margins. So I completely understood that if there's a picture of a woman here, she must have done something phenomenal. So that really kind of kicked off like a 15 year fascination mm. with this woman. And yeah, I was blown away to discover that she was doing a lot of the stuff that I ultimately wanted to do at the time. My goal was to become a female general manager, the first um, in Major League Baseball. So I've deviated from that path a little bit, but I'm, I'm good with it. Yes, as are <laughs> we. Now, you know, you mentioned how significant is it that she played this 
ownership and she was an owner and she played this management role way back when. Yeah, it's hugely significant and not just for Effa, not just for her individual career and the fact that she's got a plaque in Cooperstown. Um, I think it really speaks to the significance of the Negro Leagues. Um, She was not the first owner of a team by any means. There were white women who owned teams that inherited them from husbands and fathers and things like that. But, you know, Major Major League Baseball was was very rigid rigid in in its culture and the way they did things. And so these women had to bring on, you know, presidents and general managers and people that would actually run the team. So, you know, I've been asked, um, are there are there people, are there women who, who you know, existed in EFA's era the, who we should have been able to see in Major League Baseball, you know, in the, in the Hall of Fame? And absolutely. And I think if not for the Negro Leagues, we wouldn't even have EFA. You know, she could have been the same person with the same, you know, business skill and savvy and all that. But if not for this entity that existed that really had to make and play by their own rules, she wouldn't have had the opportunities that she had to build this career. So she was a pretty shrewd business owner, huh? Yeah, for sure. So real quick, I want to ask you, when did your love of the game transfer into something you wanted to write about professionally? That's a good question. Um, (laughs) I just, I always loved it. I always wrote, too. I mean, my mom does not have pictures that I drew as a kid. There were no pictures of houses and birds flying in the sky. It was all short stories and stuff like that. So even in high school, when I started getting this, like, mind, I'd stopped playing softball then and was, like, really aware of what was happening, like, off the field. Like, I'm, I'm pouring through ESPN the magazine. I still have that first cover that came out that had like Cordell Stewart on it and Alex Rodriguez. Okay. I wanted to I wanted to do that, but I was also really excited about what was happening off the field. How much like please somebody explain stadium financing deals. Like what this doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't really make sense to me, if I'm gonna be honest. Okay. You know, how much how much are our companies making on, you know, this field signage and oh, I would actually do this in in game promotion a different way. And why aren't there more people that look like me at the baseball game? All these different things were super intriguing to me. And then when I married that with the writing, yeah, I think I I think I found my sweet spot a little bit. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour with local authors Andrea Williams and Anika O'Rock about the legacy of women in baseball. So, you know, when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 and became the first player in the black player in the major leagues, what were Effa Manley's thoughts? Like, did what did she see in the tea leaves about this move? Yeah, I think Effa, she came to baseball not, I mean, she was a baseball fan. She she loved Babe Ruth and the Yankees and, you know, lived in Harlem after high school so she could walk to the polo grounds and see them play. But she came from outside of it in a business sense. So she was, she had fresh eyes to mm-hmm. the situation. So as we start approaching this, this era of integration, she kind of understood, just thinking about it purely from a business perspective and not just, oh, you know, I love baseball and I'd love to see a black man play in the majors or, oh, you know, I love the black community so much. This will be great for our people. She's like, I this is going to kill our businesses, like straight mm. up. Um, I love the fact that, you know, your sister was talking about her character, telling her daughter, you got to own your own business. That's the only way. Like, yeah. and in the 30s, 40s, I mean, we could keep going. 2022 like you really need to be in control in this country in order to really be able to make the moves you want to make like 
if we have seen nothing else, we know that we cannot always wait on white people to get it right. So I think she understood that we were going to be losing perhaps more that we were gaining in just getting this one guy. There was going to be a lot of guys who never got the call. But the managers, the the coaches, the people who drove the bus driver, you, you know, drove the buses, the, you know, the secretaries, the PR people, they weren't going to get opportunities in the same way if we look at, you know, the the desegregation of schools. Mm-hmm. They they plucked out a couple kids, but what happened to the teachers? What happened to the principals, the people who were working in those black schools? They didn't get the opportunity to move over. I think she understood that. Author and illustrator Anika Orak is still with us. So now when it comes to race, while you were researching the All-American Girls Baseball League, you found some unwritten rules about who they let play, right? I mean, what were some of those rules? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, because this was uh, created at a time where it was just even uh, unheard of for women to be playing baseball, they had what was basically called a, an exacting beauty standard. Standard, You know, what do people want to see? What is the What is the... Uh, standard of, you know, all Americanness and wholesomeness and beauty. And you look at cosmetics available at the time, you look at everything available at the time, and it's all completely geared toward whiteness. And that was the standard that was set in place for this league. Obviously, you know, you can see it in, in how they're dressed. You see the lipstick and all of that, but, you know, the talent was there and that was the core of the motivation of building this league. So clearly that talent exists in other places and black and brown women were excluded entirely. Um, I I started researching that because it became very obvious the more photos I looked at and the more I read about it. Um, and it wasn't talked about, of course, at all. It was just kind of, again, like a visual realization. And um, as in Major League Baseball, it's a rule. It's a, you know, quote unquote, unwritten rule, which, you know, I think really is just... Uh, the excuse to say, well, we never actually officially said that it wasn't allowed. It just mm-hmm. never, you know. Um, and there's even I found meeting notes in the archives at um, the university in South Bend that uh, from the league that basically say, you know, um, we we discourage this. But should a woman, you know, should a black woman show up to tryouts, we, you know, we'll give her a fair tryout. We won't turn her away. And should she be good enough? Then, of course, we'll make her feel welcome. It's like all these ifs, right? Mm. But, of course, you know, there's story after story of women that did show up and were turned away and were, um, com- you know, and, of course, I'm sure women didn't show up because they already knew they wouldn't be welcome. Uh, and so that that was uh, an interesting thing to try to include, particularly when a lot of the people I interviewed were not really very excited to talk about it or, you know, when you consider – being a white woman from the Midwest in the 40s, um, you show up to baseball, you're so excited, you get to play professionally. Is that even on your radar? Are you even aware <laughs> of who's on your bus? Probably not. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a tough but interesting thing to research. And it really, really highlights, you know, characters like Maxine in the show and women like Tony Stone in real life who they the perseverance and the grit is even that much more astounding because not only did they have a love for it and they were excellent at playing baseball, but they didn't have the one imperative thing that these women had, and that was each other. It was a very lonely road for them, and they they still managed to just kick rear, kick things I can't say on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it highlights, uh, like, the need for progress during that time and kind of some of the incremental progress made since then. I mean, Melissa Ludke was a part of a major lawsuit that changed sports media when she sued to have a, a, be allowed access to the locker room for post-game interviews after she was denied for being a woman. But th- that was a moment of progress. But I'd like to ask both of you, what other forms of progress would you like to see? Anika. 
Oh, I'd like to see, I mean, you know, these these ideas of progress and first, you know, that's a huge um, advancement that, that was made, but that doesn't mean it was safe or uh, easy or enjoyable for her, um, as with anyone. And first is a very lonely place to be, and particularly when there isn't someone right behind you. So I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of women um, advance in baseball in, in offices and coaching positions. Um I think what would be really important is to give women and girls the opportunity to play with one another, first of all, and not constantly wonder if we're going to see women in the major leagues. And I think that should start with girls. And I think when you're starting with kids and you're moving all the way up through college and into professional level, it's important from the top down and from the bottom up to be to make sure that everyone is represented, everyone is included, um, because that's, you know, those things are going to move toward the center and eventually create a bridge. Andrea. Um, I mean, I would like to see intersectional unity. I think I think it's important that, you know, you talking about, you know, these white women who were excited to have this opportunity in the 40s didn't think about the other women Mm -hmm. that didn't also get the opportunity. I think that speaks so much to how society works and why we are still here in 2022. Um, If you are complicit even as you're getting your opportunity, if you're complicit in a regime, in a system, in an entity that is still continuing to exclude other people, it's never going to work for you. It's just not. And, you know, we've seen over and over what feminism looks like in this country. It looks like white women. It mm-hmm. looks like white women who continue to be upset because they're not really getting everything that they want to get. But they are never really thinking about the people who don't have what they have. So I would like to see us rally together. Um, and I think, honestly, that's the only way anybody's ever going to succeed and be no. happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have one minute left. I want to ask this question because I'm curious. Both of you, one minute. Did either of you play Little League Baseball? Andrea? I play softball, but not baseball. Softball? What positions? I've kind of, I was utility. Um, like, my, my 10-year-old is all over the field, and I was like, yo, your mom could do it all, too. I didn't pitch, though. I could not get the windmill thing going right, <laughs> Okay. but but pretty much everywhere else on the field, yeah. Okay. Annika? I played baseball with my family and my dad. I always wanted to play first base because I'm a Giants fan, so I was a big Will Clark fan. But okay. um, when it came time to actually play, yeah, I, I got to school, and softball tryouts were a thing. I was like, but I don't want to play softball. I want right. to play baseball. <laughs> yeah, they're two totally different games. Totally different things. Yeah, when I was in the sixth grade, uh, we had a I was I was on a championship little league baseball team. We won like four championships in a row. But in that league, in the history of that league, we had the first girl to play on our team, Tara O'Neill. And she was really Really good. Helped us win this another championship. I want to give many thanks to my guests, author and illustrator Anika Orak. She was joined by writer Andrea Williams. Thanks to you both for being with us today in this great conversation. Thank you. You know, we've been talking this hour about the legacy of women in baseball. What about the future? Who better to ask than a 13-year-old girl, right? We sent our producer, Rose Gilbert, to meet with Lily Smith. Baseball means a lot to me. It was the first sport I ever tried out for. How old were you when you started playing? Um, I'd say probably about seven or eight. Um, This is actually a picture of recently when I played and then the first time I ever played. Oh, look how little you are. (laughs) Yep, I was on the Padres team. And then you can see that I actually still have the same helmet. This ball is actually from the first time I ever played baseball. I found it actually right outside our baseball park. 
I like the I like the dirty baseball with the princess crowns. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a cool. Look. It's just right in the middle. Yep. Um, in my bag right here is my baseball glove that I have been playing with for a long time. Um, I've had it for quite a while. It's pretty old, um, but it's definitely a good glove. I've loved it forever. That's probably why I haven't gotten rid of it yet. If it's a pot fly, so it's one that's in the air, you want to make sure that you know where the ball is first. You don't want to be scared of the ball, so you don't want to try and get to the side of the ball and catch it from there. You want to be right underneath it so that you know that it's going to go in your glove. So just try not to be scared of the ball. <laughs> How do you feel when you're up to bat? Oh, it's definitely a little nerve-wracking, <laughs> um, especially because I am a pretty good hitter, but sometimes with the right pitcher, it is a little scary. <laughs> um, but it's really just you got to feel confident, and you got to know that you're probably going to hit it, so just do your best. Are there any girls on your team now? No, there's not. I'm doing a summer like conditioning league right now, and um, it just ended, but it was at first it was a little hard to get used to being the only girl and all the boys being there and talking about their boy stuff. But after a while, I kind of got used to it. Do you ever wish there were there was like a girls baseball league? Oh yeah, of course. I would love to have a girls baseball team because the pitching. I like baseball pitching better than softball pitching just because I feel like it's easier for me to know the pitch since it's overhand than in softball it's underhand so it's a little bit harder to know what to expect. Um, so it would be pretty cool if they had a girls baseball team, yeah. Um, where I'm playing right now, um, I'm playing in my park behind my house and um, the league goes up to 14. So after I'm done with this and I go off to high school, <laughs> most likely um, I will be switching over to softball. How do you feel about that? Um, well, sometimes it can be a little sad, um, but also at the same time, softball is definitely going to be fun because I'll get to play with girls. What would you tell a seven or eight year old girl who's sitting at home right now who's thinking about starting baseball? Um, well, I would tell them to go for it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. On Monday, we talk about the tomato festival. We'll try to answer the age-old question, is it a fruit or a vegetable? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. Today is her last day, and we want to thank you for all of your great work. You rock. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Coach Gooch. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody, and be good to each other.